Good evening. How's everyone doing? Good. Good. Got a little bit of feedback. <laughs> a couple of you are doing good. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor here at Sojourn, and we are glad that you're with us. As Crystal said in our announcements, it's still light outside when our services start. The time's changing soon. It's actually a really sunny day, and so it's kind of a sacrifice this time of year to be inside when it's sunny out. So thank you for being with us. Uh, last week, we started a new series in the book of James that we we're calling A Living Faith, and we'll be there probably for the next two, maybe three months. Just going to try to take it a few verses at a time and just see where we end up and uh, where we land. Last week, I introduced the book itself, uh, the author of the book, and the opening verses. And it's not up on our podcast yet. You might even be thinking, we have a podcast? We actually do have a podcast. It's way behind. I have a friend of mine who is working on it right now, and so we're hopefully going to get up to speed. And so if you can go back and listen to Nehemiah and different series that we've done, and then even listen to the intro uh, to the book of James, uh, just to be caught up to speed, because it really frames the whole series for us, and it frames, I think, this sermon tonight as well. Uh, The opening sermon to this series was on joy in trials. And I'm assuming you're all familiar, our community faced a great trial this week. As Concordia University announced that they're closing after 115 years. Uh, We've got students, uh, student in here tonight, and then students from Concordia who interact with us. I was over on campus, uh, I think, three days last week. And it's just, people are mourning. It's a trial that no one really saw coming. And so the students who you might know, reach out to them, send a note of encouragement, let them know that you're praying for them. And I've uh, let the faculty and staff know that although we're a small church, that we are here for them in any way that we can, just to minister to them, to pray with them, uh, to be there for them during this hard time of transition. Uh, Now, if you weren't with us last week, James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he's been encouraging a group of scattered Jewish Christians to remain faithful to Christ, even in the midst of the trials they have found themselves in. And so that's kind of how it's set up, and this is who he's writing to. This is the audience that he's looking at. And James reminds them that God is working to accomplish his purposes in their lives, even in their trials. And what we looked at last week was that idea of joy and trials, that even the trials that we face, that God is working out something within us so that we look more like Jesus in the midst of those trials. Not that we seek those trials, but that we have the hope in Jesus that the world around us just doesn't have. And so that in itself should cause us to have some level of joy. In the portion that we're going to look at this evening, James continues by looking at the pride and humility that accompanies one's place in society. And then James goes a step further in helping us understand the trials he's been referring to, that they will not come in isolation. And so if you remember, I've told you James is kind of choppy in his writing, and so we're going to see that a little bit tonight. Um, It's going to seem like he has ADD in some ways, because he's on one topic, all of a sudden he'll switch over to another topic, and then he'll revisit the original topic, and then he'll go somewhere entirely else. And so it's like me seeing a squirrel run by the window as I'm up here, and all of a sudden, you know, my mind gets off track. It's kind of what James does a little bit for us. And what he's going to show us, though, is that these trials are going to be accompanied with temptations, temptations of various kinds. We're going to see temptations to despair, temptations to doubt in God's goodness, temptations to sin in all sorts of ways that we might think will kind of lessen the pain of the trial itself. Maybe it'll make it a little bit easier for us. We may even find ourselves thinking that if we would just give in to sin in one particular area of our life, then maybe we could get out of the trial altogether. Have you ever found yourself in the midst of something and thinking, man, I found myself in this situation because I was honest or because I spoke the truth. And so we kind of find ourselves tempted to cut corners and and to not expose things with the light and, and to do things the way that the world would want us to do them. And James is going to show us that is not the way to live our lives. And so the trials themselves will be accompanied by temptation to sin. Now, many people, even many Christians, think that once you give your life to Jesus, once you are a Christ follower, that you shouldn't struggle with sin anymore. 
Like you take some kind of magic pill and you wake up the next day. And you're like, man, that struggle that I had is gone. Like it's not there. Now there are miraculous events that happen. I, I know my own father's life prior to becoming a Christian, he was an alcoholic. And he said overnight, it went from craving alcohol and always needing it to where he couldn't stand the smell of it. And he hasn't taken a sip ever since. And so that happens, but I think that rarely happens. I think for most of us, we still kind of gravitate back towards those areas of struggle. And so sometimes people have that wrong idea. That is the furthest thing from the truth. And what James is going to do, James is going to show us this evening that we are going to face these trials. And these trials are going to lead us to temptation. But what is it that we do in the midst of the temptation is that what matters. And so go ahead and turn with me to James chapter 1. We're going to pick back up in verse 9 where we left off last Sunday. If you do not own a Bible or just don't have one with you this evening, we do have a couple of blue Bibles on the communion table there in the back. Feel free to grab it if you'd like. The words should be next to me here on the screen as well. And let me pray for us and we'll jump into our text. God, I want to come to you and just thank you for another Sunday evening. God, it's a beautiful day and we are able to come here and to worship you freely. God, that we can come here and, and for just a moment, just for a, an evening to leave the troubles of the world behind us. And God, that we can come seek you and pursue you. God, our community is mourning right now. We face a great trial, the school, the staff, the faculty, the students, but even our, our neighborhood and even just kind of greater Northeast Portland. And God, even in the midst of that, that we can rely and have a hope in you. And that is where the joy comes from. And so God, I ask as we look this evening at the temptations that come all of our way, God, that we would see how it is that we are to respond. In your name we pray. Amen. James 1, starting verse 9. says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So what is the main point of these verses. What James is saying is that both poverty and riches bring enormous pressure on a person to focus on the things of the world rather on, than on Christ. And so this evening, whether you consider yourself someone of poverty or someone of riches, you feel that pressure. But what James says that things like wealth are temporary and they will pass away just like a lily in a grassy field. We're not quite to spring. Today was kind of a preview. It's still cool out, but our grass is starting to grow. I was even looking at my backyard. I need to cut the grass. And soon those little white flowers and little yellow flowers will start popping up before we cut the grass. But those also, if a windstorm comes in, those things will just blow away and they'll be gone. So he's kind of liking the wealth to something like that. that it comes and then it quickly goes. Now you might be thinking, but I don't have wealth, so I'd really like it. Like I'm kind of that way. Like momentary, I'll take it. Just give it to me for a little bit. But what James, James says is going to pass away so quickly. And then he exhorts the poor to boast in their status in Christ. He says, in other words, boast in what God has done for us. The lowly brother will be exalted by God. And so the message of the gospel to even the poorest Christian is that in Christ you are somebody. Think about our own, own city. We have a, a housing crisis and we have a, a homeless crisis. And there are all, people all over our city, people that are fellow Portlanders, people that we should love and care for. And it's easy for those people, as I've gotten to know them, feel like they're nobodies, and they just get ignored. But what this is telling us, what the gospel message would say to those people in our city who are sleeping in tents, or maybe on a mattress without a tent, is that in Christ, you are somebody. And Christianity is the one religion that brings a sense of value to the poor. Whereas almost every other religion represents some type of judgment on you, or it's something that you have done that has got you in that case, saying that you have no value. 
you ever thought about that, that, that these world religions? I mean, I think when I live in India, Hinduism would say, well, there's obviously something you did in your past life, and that's the reason that you have no, now come back, and this is the life that you live. And that you deserve that for something that you've done. Where Christianity is the one that says, no, we should bring value to all people, to all life, including those of the, what we consider, would say, lower in society, as James is pointing out. And in Christianity, those whom the world describes as poor will discover that they are, one, valued as people, that, that, that you are valued. I think sometimes just hearing that goes a really long way. And so if the next time you interact with someone who, who's maybe asking for money in front of New Seasons or in front of Walgreens and they have a sign, you say, I don't even know what to say to this person, just tell them they're valued. So you are a valued individual, and you are valued in Jesus. And I guarantee that it will go a really long way. They also learn that they matter in the world, that they have a place in society. They learn that they matter to God, and they learn that they matter in the church. And that's why as Sojourn, we want to be a place for all people, for rich and for poor and for black and for white. We want all people to come and take this journey of learning what it means to follow Jesus. And James exhorts the rich to boast in their humiliation. Now, that's got to be a hard pill to swallow because that's the exact opposite that the world tells them. The world says you need to boast in all the riches that you have. Boast in the fact you have the cars that you have. Boast in the fact you have the homes that you have. And boast in the jewelry that you're able to wear and the gadgets you're able to take around. You know, I think about when I get on an airplane, I'm always kind of jealous at the ones who are sitting in those first couple of rows in that first class seats. I'm like, ugh. But I need to look at them and say, don't boast in in that status. Don't boast in first class. You need to boast in your humiliation. And so we learn the gospel is deeply humbling. Is it not? Because regardless if you are rich or poor in this life, the gospel tells us that we are in desperate need of something that we cannot obtain on our own. I think that's why one, one way when it points out here for, you know, we think of, of rich. Like if I came to all of you and said, like, would you like to be rich? I think most would say yes. Like it'd be nice to have more money. It'd be nice to be able to afford to buy a house in the city of Portland. That's kind of what I'm facing right now. It's like, yeah, that would be, that would be great. But then the gospel message comes in and says, even if you attain to this social status by the world's measures, you're still in need. And none of us like to be told that we have a need. But the reality is every single one of us in this room has a need. And all the people in our city have a need in our country and in the world. And that need is Jesus Christ. And it can only be filled by Jesus. And James wants them to see that their wealth is temporary and it brings zero advantage to them before God. You may have all the things that the world seeks after, but when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ, when it comes to facing Christ, Face-to-face, it, just, it brings you no advantage. You can't say, well, I've got this, and I can't trade you in my Lamborghini. Like, it doesn't matter. Think about Kobe Bryant, arguably one of the greatest basketball, play- basketball players of all time, had a net worth of $600 million when he passed away a couple of weeks ago. I can remember being a kid and watching Kobe Bryant getting drafted into the NBA and thinking, man, this guy is going to be something special. And so here we have this, this, this individual who had anything that anyone could ever imagine. One, he, he made it into the NBA at a very young age. He had an amazing career, had lots of money, cars and homes, the beautiful family, everything that went with that. But on the tragic day, just, I think, what, two, three weeks ago, when the helicopter crashed, Kobe and his daughter and several others lost their life, and they lost access to any of the things that he had. And just like the flower in the field that perishes away, Kobe Bryant perished from this earth. Yes, his family is set up, but you would want your family to be set up as well. So yes, those assets continue, but Kobe does no longer has access to him. When Kobe stood in front of God, he couldn't say, but God, here's my $600 million, you can have it. He had to come face to face with eternity and that reality. And it's like it's going to be like that for all of us. And so in sum, what we find in verses 9 through 11 is James' chosen illustration is what he's been teaching on the previous seven verses. That life, the life that we're all living, it's full of varying experiences. And here's a typical contrast of the poor man and the rich man. 
And each within his own circumstances must rejoice, even glory, for this is the true response of the Christian. But each too must see his situation, not through the eyes of the world's wisdom, but in light of a wisdom sought from God. And remember back in our chapter last week, he tells us to ask for wisdom. And so even in the, in the contrast of the poor and the rich, we are to ask for wisdom. How it is that I'm to handle the situation that I found myself in? Most of you know that I don't take a dime from Sojourn Church, from our internal giving, but all of mine is provided from donors outside. And thankfully, there are some people who do have some money. But I, it was really hard for me to raise funds. But when I would go to individuals and they would say, Matt, this isn't my money. God has entrusted me with this money. And God has, has, has given me discernment and wisdom on how to use it. And this is just as much your money as my money. And so I'm like, well, can you give me another couple hundred? No, I'm just joking. But I was thinking, you know, I'm thankful that they, they view their money that way. But do we view our things that way? I mean, even the little bit I have, I'm like, man, that's my iPhone. Man, that's my Honda Pilot. Man, that's my snowboard. Man, that's, you know, that's my whatever it happens to be. James goes on in verse 12. He says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And so this verse is telling us that the man or woman who remains faithful in trials will be fully satisfied. For he or she will receive blessing and eternal life. What James is doing is he's taking us back to verses 2 through 4 from last week where he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And we are told that the reward for the faithful perseverance is eternal life with all of its abundant blessings. And it's as we learn to take pride in our gospel-given positions that we are able to stand the test, knowing that there's a greater future coming, that it may not look the way we want to look here, but that one day all things will be made right. As we continue on, we're going to see James make one of those shifts. All of a sudden, his, his mindset goes somewhere else for us in verse 13. And he's going to turn to the other side of trials when we see the testing turns into temptations, a word that I'm sure you're all familiar with. And so pick up in verse 13. It says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it has fully grown, brings forth death. So what are these verses saying? That God cannot be tempted by evil and tempts no one. But temptation, the temptation itself that we all face, it's a lure of our own desires. And if we give in to this lure, we have crossed into sin, and sin, if we allow, will eventually bring forth death. And so what we see in other places of Scripture where God does test His people, God allows His people to go through testing, and it strengthens their character. But James wants to be clear in our mind that God never tempts His people. And so if you think, God is tempting me, and God's putting this in my life, but God does not tempt us. And you say, well, why? How do you know that? Well, one is God cannot be tempted by evil. It's impossible. There's no part of evil that is made up of God. And so it's impossible for him to be tempted himself, and therefore he would never tempt us with evil. It's, it's not possible for God to do. And God may allow us to be tested, but he never tempts us because he never desires for his people to sin. And so Christians, we should never blame God when we do wrong. We always want to blame somebody else when we do the wrong. Right? We, we may look to our, our brother or our sister or our friend or our coworker or our spouse or even God and say, well, you made me do this because you put this out in front of me. But that is the wrong thing to do. But what we should come to expect as normal is, one, we are to expect temptation. And so if you're being tempted, guess what that means? That means you are normal. And so expect temptation. Don't think you're bad and don't beat yourself up because you're facing temptation. That just means you're a normal human being. 
James expects temptation to be a normal feature in the life of a Christian. Now, I do think when you become a Christian and the temptation gets turned up, the heat gets turned up because now you actually care and you have this thing called the Holy Spirit who's guiding your life, where before it's just kind of like, who cares? And so you are going to be tempted. Now, where does temptation come from? I think this is one that for years I probably thought of wrong or got wrong and maybe still do. But temptation, based on this passage, it says temptation comes from within. Stop to think about that for a minute. Whatever it is that tempts you, that thing that you keep returning to, that thing that you swear up and down and you say, I'll attend church this many times this next year, or, or I'll, I'll, I'll go do these things because I'll never do it again. I promise. Like I, one more time. Whatever that is, and, and you keep creeping back to it, it comes from within you. That temptation that's lured out in front of you, that is something from inside of us that we desire. Now, James uses the fishing terms, lured and enticed. So if you're a fisherman, this will make sense. If you're not, hopefully you've watched enough movies and TV shows for this to make sense for you. My friend Matt Carter points out, when you think about fishing by its nature, it is an act of deception. The whole point of fishing is to put something on the end of a line that looks like what a fish wants to eat. And so you get your, you get your bait or your worm. Well, it's a live worm or a fake worm, and, and you throw it out there, right? You want it to be enticing. And so if you've ever been fishing and you use one of those rubbery plastic worms, you, you throw it in the water, there's a little bit of bait on it, and the fish sees it drop in, and the fish thinks, sweet, I found dinner. You know, I'm out here swimming around, I'm looking for it, and all of a sudden it's, just, it's right there in front of me. This is a great day. And so the fish sees what appears to be like dinner, but if, maybe he's still not sure though. He's like, well, wait a minute, I remember when I was with my cousin Jimmy, Jimmy the fish, and Jimmy was swimming around, and then Jimmy was gone. I'm not sure what happened to Jimmy. We're still looking for him. They did a Dateline special, and we just haven't found him yet. And so he's not sure, but he's still like, man, this looks really, really good. And so he's, he's at least lured over to check it out. You know, Instead of going the other way, he's kind of like, I'm going to swim over and, and check this thing out. And the fish swims around it for a bit, and, the, and you know, the longer he's there, the longer he's lingering, the more everything just appears to be normal. Like, this, this looks good. Like, this looks legit. It looks like the dinner I've been waiting for. And the longer he looks at it, the tastier it gets and the juicier it looks. And eventually, eventually the fish kind of brushes by the worm. Not to really like touch it, touch it, but you know, like just kind of a little, kind of a little brush, almost like a flirt, if you would. And just like, ooh, let me, oh, okay, that, that felt kind of, feels like a real worm. That, that felt good. And as, as he continues to follow the lure, he sees the color and he decides deep down, I've, I've got to have it. I have crossed the point of no return. Now, those are dangerous words whenever we're talking about temptation. But he's crossed the point of no return. He says, I can't live without this any longer. And the fish takes a bite. Now, unfortunately for the fish, as he bites down, there's another part that's covered up by the bait. It's called a hook. And so the fish now, who got what he thought was his early dinner, who only seconds ago thought, man, this is an amazing day, suddenly he feels the pain of a sharp metal hook piercing through his bottom lip. The next thing he knows, he's being pulled out of the water, by that hook while he's on a line, thrown in a cooler. He's filleted in half. He's grilled to perfection only to become the dinner of the fisherman that night. What do you think is going through the mind of that fish as he was being pulled up by that hook towards a place he never intended to go? This fish is like, man, I'm just out here swimming. I'm just living my fishy life and doing whatever fish do. Their life probably seems really easy compared to ours. But the fish is just out there and he sees it and he's like, man, that looks really good. But last time that happened, something bad happened, so I'm not sure. But then he kind of lures around and kind of swims around and brushes up again. And finally, he says, I've got to have it. 
And so what do you think was going through that fish's mind, assuming fish have thoughts, in the moment it was being pulled up? My guess is something like this. Wow, I just made the greatest mistake of my life. Well, probably first it was like, oh, that hurt, and probably said a word we, sh- we can't say at church or probably shouldn't say at all. Like, oh, that hurt. And then thought, man, this was going to be a yummy snack, and I think this is leading to my ultimate death. That's what's going on here. Sojourn. James is saying this is exactly what happens to Christ followers when we sin. On the front end, sin always looks enticing. Let's be honest. Sin, it's, a lot of times it's fun. It looks really, really good, and it's very, very pleasurable. And when no one's watching, we're kind of like, well, there's nobody around. I don't know anybody on this side of town. I don't think there's anybody watching. So it looks good. But just like that deceiving little fishing lure, there's always a hook. And sin will always take you to places you never intended to go. Hear that again. Sin will always take you to places you never intended to go. And the uncomfortable truth is this. The evil desire tugging away at us, it's our own. We can blame the enemy all day long. And trust me, spiritual warfare is real. And you probably hear that come out of my mouth a lot. The longer I'm in ministry and church planning, the more I believe in it. And it'd be even easy for me to go, well, man, the enemy just threw this out in front of me. But there's something evil down inside of me. There's something evil down inside of you that that is what that, that desire being expressed, that's where it's coming from. And so our desires are what cause temptation. So if you say, where does temptation come from? It comes from your desire. And James shows us that we are both an agent and victim of our desires. And it's what you do after temptation comes. So hear me clearly. The temptation is not wrong. But it's what comes after temptation that determines if the temptation turns into something that falls short of the glory of God. And so we're all tempted, but it's well, how we handle that temptation. What do we do with that temptation? And our desire of giving into turns into sin, which if grown into maturity turns into death. And so this dramatic depiction shows a terrible result when one gives in to temptation. And it all starts with our desire. That hit me in a brand new way this week. Because I'm like everyone, like I want to blame it on somebody else. You know, it's like, well, they, that was in front of me. Like I didn't intend to go there. It just kind of got placed in front of me. I didn't intend to receive that phone call, but it just kind of happened. I didn't intend to this, whatever it may be. And I want to blame others. Or said, man, the devil, man, the devil made me do it. But it all starts with our desire. Sam Aubrey, he said, once it has been given birth, it grows until it reaches the point where we can no longer control it. It doesn't stop where we plan for it to. It keeps taking us further and further. And so we find ourselves doing things that we would have never imagined. We find ourselves doing things we would have never imagined. Have you ever found yourself there? Scratching your head and going, how did I, how did I get here? You kind of wake up to this reality. Maybe you've been in a fall. Like, how, how did I find myself in this situation? It takes us to places that we never would have imagined we would go. And so, Sojourn, here's the point of this scripture. Sin never ends well. That's just a reality. That's why sin is ugly. It just, it never ends well. Pick up in verse 16. James says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now these verses are saying, do not be fooled. Every good and perfect gift is from God who does not change. God brought forth the word of truth that we received salvation. Now verse 16 is very telling, as I believe it is very 
easy and all too easily for us to be deceived in the Christian life. To think that we are being attentive to God when we actually are not being attentive to God. And to think that we are pleasing God with our lives when we actually aren't pleasing God with our lives. I believe much of our generation is being deceived. We are known as the deconstructionists of our generation, and we all do it. So I'm not saying I'm against deconstructing things of your background or even of your faith, because we've all done it. I've done it. I guarantee that you've done it. But as I sense, and I'm using discernment, asking God for wisdom, I sense that our generation is getting to a very dangerous place. Some really good things have come as a result of deconstructing our faith, and I'm no prophet, but there's a really scary thing that I see people that are deconstructing to the point of nothing being left and questioning things that Orthodox Christianity would have never questioned. And so there is such a thing as ultimate truth. There is such a thing as biblical authority, core doctrines of our faith that many of us are just throwing out today and just saying, man, I'm going to, kind of, I'm going to rewrite this Bible myself. And I'll be honest, we're going to have a very thin book left, maybe none at all. And so we're being deceived And then we see James transition for us from evil temptations, which, as we said, God never gives us, to the observation that every good gift and every perfect gift does come from God. There's nothing in this world that's truly good that has any other origin than from above, namely heaven, descending from the Father of lights, which refers to God as the creator of the heavenly lights. It says God is unchanging in his character and therefore in his giving of good. You ever thought about that? This kind of goes back to the beginning with the rich and the poor. That, that the rich can just say, man, look at all that I've done. I've worked really hard, and look what I have. And like, like, no, any truly good thing that you have has come from God above. Even those who are not Christ followers, even if you don't recognize yourself as a Christian, as I look at those people, as I look at those friends that have money, I'm like, that's from God. Bro, you may not recognize it, but that's from God above. It's called this kind of common grace that God has given you, and God can take it away just as quickly as he gave it to you. We see that God is a source of all blessing, and James describes him in a number of wonderful terms. He says God is sovereign. God is the father of heavenly lights. I mean, he's over everything. I mean, think about the sky. I know we live in a city, so we don't get to see stars a lot. But if you ever get outside the city and you look up and you just get to see all these lights, get to the part of Oregon where it's not cloudy all the time, and you'll get to see this and experience this and just be reminded, man, God is sovereign over all of this. God is dependable. The God who does not change. We're the ones who change. We're the ones who deconstruct and think, well, maybe this or maybe that. God does not change. The God who is gracious the God who gives us new birth, who offers us that hope and salvation. And when James says that God has brought us forth by the word of truth, he's speaking of spiritual salvation. He's saying with us, meaning believers, the word of truth being the gospel that he brought forth, being that is from the womb, being a metaphor for the new birth that we have in Christ. And we see the first fruits of the harvest are pioneer believers who are a prelude to the further conversions yet to come. And that is kind of the, the hope and promise that we have. My, my assumption is, is all of us, if not most of us in this room, are Christ followers. And in a sense, we're a prelude to the other Christ followers that we're going to see come. I mean, that's why, we're, that's why we're doing a church plant in the city of Portland, because we have hope. Not that we can just keep this in this room and kind of hoard it to ourselves, but our hope is that we're a prelude to the others in our city coming to know Jesus. And James reminds us that every perfect gift comes from above, from God's gracious hand. And so don't ever get on your high horse and thinking that it came from yourself, but it all comes from God above. And so temptation is coming. It's upon us. Some of you may not have felt it today, but you may feel it tonight. And the encouragement for us is to know that temptation begins within us. That we are the ones who follow it into sin. That we kind of go down that path and go down that trail. 
And God is the one who saves us out of it through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so right now, if you are giving yourself over to any sin, if there's anything in your life that you say, man, I know that I'm, I'm allowing that to be, I almost become an idol. and I almost be the thing that controls me. Let me plead with you, turn from that sin. Because as we see in the end, sin leads to death, destruction, and judgment of God. Now, if you know tonight that you've spent your whole life living on your own, chasing your own desires, chasing your own dreams, giving yourself over to temptation and sin, know this, that although we all deserve condemnation, I had this conversation with my three boys this week. I made two of them cry, not intentionally. But talking about this idea that we all deserve punishment. Is that, that's the reality. Regardless if you're rich or poor, if you're a Christian or not a Christian, or you're not sure. We all deserve punishment a punishment, a separation, an eternal separation from God. But here's the message that he wants us to hear. God loves you. God loves us, which is why he sent his own son, Jesus, as a sacrifice for those who justly deserve punishment of sin. And so while we all deserve that punishment, Jesus comes in and he steps in our place and says, I'm going to take that punishment for you. And so tonight, if you will turn from your sin, whether it's a sin that you're turning to as a Christ follower or if you're running away from Jesus, my encouragement to you is to run to God through Jesus and be reminded that you can be rescued from the rightful outcome of your sin, which is ultimately death. And so if you've ever wondered, what does it mean to be a Christian? I don't even know anymore. Christians are sinners who have been delivered from their sins because of God's mercy. That's a really simple way to put it. And so my invitation to you tonight is would you come and experience that mercy made fresh. You can come and let that mercy be made fresh tonight and let the grace of Jesus wash over you, wash over your sins, wash over that temptation, and you can find joy in him. Pray with me and we're going to continue in our time of worship. God, we come to you tonight as people with different backgrounds, some with maybe more money than others, but guys, we realize that the only thing we can boast in is in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. God, we recognize that we are going to face temptations, a lot of temptations, and it'd be really easy to blame those on factors around us, our family, society, but God, what you tell us in your word <coughs> is that the temptation is a desire within us. And God, I don't think you shared that with us to, to, for us to beat ourselves up. I think you shared that with us to show us how desperate we really actually need you and how desperately those in the world need you. And so, God, may we take this message tonight and may we be reminded that we can turn to you, that your mercies can be made new in our lives even tonight. God, that we can confess sins to you. We can confess sins to one another. And God, that your grace does not have limits. We give the rest of this evening over to you, God, as we transition to our time of worship. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as we continue in worship, we're going to respond a couple different ways. One of those is singing songs of praise to Jesus. And in some, in some ways, just thanking Jesus. Let that be the posture of your heart, just thanking him for the mercies that are made new in your life. We respond through giving. We want to be a church that's generous, and so we give back. A couple months ago, we took up a specific offering and gave it to overseas missions. And uh, we're kind of moving into the season where we typically take up an offering to give to church planting in North America because others took up offerings just like this and have given checks to us. We also want to take up an offering 
that we can give to others and say, you know what, like no strings attached. We just want to pray for you and God bless you in your endeavors in this new church that he's calling you to plant. And then we respond through communion. So once again, this is, this is that time where maybe there's a sin that you've been holding on to or maybe you've just never fully given yourself over to Jesus. And so before you just get up, I think it'd be routine just to get up out of our chairs and we just go and grab bread and dip it into the juice and the wine to actually take a moment. Take a moment and, and seek the Lord. Examine your heart and ask God to examine your life, to reveal things to you that maybe you've become callous to and you don't even realize are going on in your life. And be reminded that this is how we remember what the Lord has done for us. This is how we remember it again. And then when you are ready, get up to respond by taking of the bread. And when you rip off the piece, be reminded that it represents Jesus' body, which was broken for you and for the sins of the world. And as you dip it into the juice, being reminded that it was Jesus' blood that was shed for you and for the sins of the world. I'll also be in the back. If somebody needs prayer, it's available. And so the time is yours. Respond accordingly.